Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 123. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Okay, this week, I have to say thank you to Kelly Schrader. He was a guest back in episodes 58 and 59, and he reached out to me, it's been quite a while now, and recommended that I talk to a guy named Josh Duffney, who is our guest today. Now, if you follow Josh Duffney at all, he started in the Spiceworks community, but today he's actually a content developer for Microsoft. When I reached out to Josh, he was happy to have this discussion with us. He's a really high-output individual, actually. What I mean by that is he's written a lot of blogs, he wrote a lot of articles for the Spiceworks community, he's even authored Pluralsight content, and now he's writing documentation for Microsoft. But he didn't start out that way. So he started in a help desk job, IT help desk, sort of jack-of-all-trades, break-fix, and he progressed to that systems administration role that many of us have been in before. And then he made it all the way to something we call DevOps engineering. And that seems to be a progression that a lot of people are making these days. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to him about what that was like. So in part one of the interview today, Josh is going to share what that journey is like how he got there, what the differences are in systems administration and DevOps engineering, and how you can follow a similar path if you want. He's going to share his story of starting out in the Spiceworks community, being someone who asked questions, followed by being someone who delivered a lot of value, how he learned PowerShell by learning from others, and how he got into other communities. Without further ado, here we go with part one of the interview with Josh Duffney. Josh Duffney, thank you so much for joining us on the Nerd Journey today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a great conversation and in which both myself and our listeners are going to learn a ton. So go ahead and start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today. Uh, so yeah, name Josh Duffney. Currently what I do is I'm a, a content developer for Microsoft. Now, what does that entail? When you say content, is that... Written content, video content. It, it encompasses the gambit, so it depends on kind of where you where your dis, where your area is. So mine right now is uh, Ansible, PowerShell, Terraform, and a little bit of Azure CLI, uh, and it's more on the written side. So all the content that I develop right now to date has been written content, like the docs. Well, actually, all the content I write is uh, on docs.microsoft.com. Okay, and do you get? Do you get some control over what docs get written or is it kind of a, we need documentation on these 10 different focus areas, make it happen, Josh? It's both. So you work with PM teams for your, your designated areas. So I have a PM for each of those tech stacks that I mentioned. Uh, but I get a pretty good control over uh, the direction of the content. Yes, there's usually like features or we want to make sure that we're, 
we're covering this gap because we've gotten some customer feedback that we're lacking in this area. And so those are kind of all untold articles. Uh, but then the rest of the time, there's definitely a lot of freedom to create kind of the content map. Um, so since joining, I've only been at Microsoft. I think I'm approaching my fourth month, um, if memory serves. And I've spent a good part of the last month doing data research and just kind of scoping out the Ansible space for Azure. Um, of course, that's, you know, geared towards that particular platform being docs uh, and just seeing what's missing. Like what's, what are the missing on-ramp pieces of content that people need to have for Ansible? Uh, I mean, I'm heavily leveraging my uh, past work experience to, to gauge that, but I'm mapping out the content roadmap and getting buy-in from PMs and from other technical writers. Um, and so it's been really fun to think at, think of writing beyond like a blog post series and more from like a infor, uh, information architecture standpoint. That's really cool. Do you have access to like a big internal lab where you can test the things you're documenting? Is that something that they provide for you or do you have to roll your own? That's kind of the more impressive parts is, is it's, so it's content development is still development. So just like you would have in software engineering, you'd have these PR environments. Those same things happen with the documentation where we get these PR environments to see our our code that is up there, our code is actually articles now um, up there live that we get to see that are, you know, just PR branches or preview branches that we get to see. So it's it's taking all the software engineering and applying it to content, which is really, really cool because I get a I get a dabble in all the, the automation and stuff. But instead of building infrastructure, I'm building documentation. Um, but all the same software engineering principles apply. That is cool, man. Well, let's let's back it up a little bit before Microsoft, because I know you didn't jump straight from college to Microsoft. No, I know that you well, our paths crossed in the Spiceworks community, and I think we'll get to that part as well. But if memory serves, you kind of got into PowerShell several years ago, and that's what kicked off this journey. Can you share with us what made that something you wanted to learn and and how it helped you? adventure career? Absolutely. So uh, the catalyst was this email of disgrace report that I had to send to my boss at the time, which wanted to, they wanted it delivered promptly at 8 a.m. Um, I lived a, a good chunk, a good jaunt away from the office. And so I wouldn't get to my desk right at eight. Uh, I'm usually not someone that's late, just happened to be at this particular place in town where it just traffic. It took me you know, some days it would take me half an hour, some days it would take me 45 minutes. And I just couldn't, unless I was an hour early every day, I couldn't time it right. Um, luckily, I didn't stay there very long. But the catalyst moment was this dispace report for the mail server. And I'm using air quotes for people on audio because it was the everything server. It was the domain controller. It was the exchange server, but it was t- it was called the mail server. Uh, and it was a print server. So if the spooler needed restarted, it, the whole domain went down um, for authentication because there weren't more than one server. So anyway... It was this 2003 box. Um, hopefully they've migrated off of it since, but it had a 60 gig hard drive and it would keep filling up because people's emails would would fill it up. And we had to like keep capping people's mailboxes from the exchange server. But anyway, to prevent all this as a preventative measure, it was my responsibility to log into the box, pull up Windows Explorer or you know File Explorer and look at this space and then email my boss what was left. Um, and so what, how this came about was actually back to the Spicer's community. I was a little disgruntled by this task that I had, this mundane task that I had. And so I posted, I was ranting about it in the water cooler and Spiceworks and someone, 
uh, gave me the idea like, hey, why don't you just script this? You know, like you don't have to email this. You could write some little bit of code and put it as a scheduled task and wouldn't be the wiser. Kick off every day at the same time. You could even randomize the time if you wanted, you know, so it's not too suspicious. Um, and so that's what I did. And that, that was kind of like the, the hook uh, where I got into PowerShell and the automation was seeing that I could I could do all this work without doing the work. You know, like this, this, the, it fed very much to the lazy attributes that I had. Um, Leniously, I didn't stay very long at that job. I actually got a job at a very large construction company um, here in town where I live, where I live in uh, Bellevue, Nebraska. And I was on the service desk of like 30 or 40 engineers and kind of like the catalyst for really getting into PowerShell. Um, after like three or four months there, another gentleman and I on the team, we were for, referred to as the script kids um, because we were both in our, I was in my early 20s. He was in maybe his mid 20s. And so the rest of the help desk was um, about that age or a little bit older because we would just sit there and we would write PowerShell scripts all day. Uh, and the reason being working for this big company, we would often get these tickets, like disable these 300 active directory users. And the typical process was, okay, we have 50 people. We're going to divide the number of disables by the people and everybody just gets five a day. And we were able to do it in, you know, seconds if anybody's written a, a loop, right? Where we had the emails coming in. So we had the list of names that we needed. And so we just would create loops and disable them. And so that got us noticed. Um, and that really started to sharpen my skills on that. Cause I had, before I had been a one man shop and I didn't have enough repetity or, or monotony to really get a handle on scripting. And now I did because I was working for such a large company. Um, but that was the beginning point. And then from there, I kind of, you know, I got into more automation and the DevOps journey. Um, and then, yeah, happy to dive into more of that story. But that's that's the beginning of it. Man, I got flashes of deja vu when you talked about everything being on the same server. And I was just almost opened my email to check to see if tickets were coming in about the domain controller needing to be rebooted. <laughs> the good old days. That's the good old days for sure. Yeah, it's... It's interesting. Like you said, small environment, maybe not as easy to automate yourself out of a out of a job almost. When you were given this title as a script kid or kind of slang title, was it more of a, we want you to go find ways to script everything you can, or we want you to focus in this particular area? Um, it was more from, it's kind of like a, a, a slang term of appreciation because we were saving the tier one where I was in the, in the tier two. Um, and so was the other gentleman that, that had that title. And so we were just saving them huge amounts of time. Um, and really, we didn't get any direction from from management. We just we jumped at every opportunity we had, you know, from building SharePoint sites to managing Active Directory, uh, anything that PowerShell could touch, we did. And we were in a Windows environment. So that was pretty much everything at the time. And did that help desk team that you were a part of that was very large? Did they cover everything for the entire company and, and you just were part of a specific subset that focused on Active Directory and other things or? Yeah, they were the ingress for all tickets for the company. So whether it was networking or, you know, server or they had their, they had their um, layers, but we handled everything from level one and level two handled just generally everything. And then we had to escalate. And once it got past level two, then it would, you know, fragment into the typical silos that you'd have the the data team and the server team and the network team. Um, But if we could handle it at level one and two, we would no matter what it was. I mean, in that job, it was really interesting because one day I would be, you know, upgrading the iOS on a Cisco router or switch. And the next day I would be writing PowerShell scripts to spin up SharePoint sites or to build virtual machines for the server team. So I got pretty broad exposure across 
all the layers of tech. Yeah, and makes it super dynamic. And I guess your progression path at that particular role is really what you just said up to tier two, tier three, and then into some sort of specialty. At the time, were you, was there anything that just really lit your fire in terms of, I love working with this technology? Or were you still trying to figure it out? So I was, I was trying to convince myself that I wanted to be a CCIE. So at the time, you know, like that was my big goal at the service desk was to get into the, to get in the network team. I was studying for my CCNA at the time. I had, I had taken it twice before I joined and failed. And so I took it a third time and I actually did pass during that time frame. But then PowerShell just became, um, I realized that it came way more naturally and it was a lot more fun. And so I started to focus more of my energy on that. And it wasn't, I think it took about eight months and I was in service desk and I got an, the opportunity to apply to a, a systems engineer position where they were uh, managing the SCCM, System Center Configuration Manager environment, where I'd be doing a lot of um, operating system deployments and software application installs. And so I jumped on that opportunity and it was all, I made it all PowerShell based. <laughs> so I took that and I just, you know, I, as much as I could script for the Operating system installs was in PowerShell with task sequences, um, and then you know obviously installing. Actually, that's where I started to act. Started to get more involved in the PowerShell community was in that job, where I started to um, automate the basically like driver management and SCCM, as well as the application management and deployment through PowerShell um, using SCCM as basically the delivery vehicle. Now it seems like that role might be a little bit more project-based or proactively focused as opposed to the reactive nature of the help desk. Is that accurate? To a degree, but there was a lot of, uh, anyone that's used SCCM knows that there's a lot of fires <laughs> inside of it. So it's kind of, kind of both. Um, but yeah, it was definitely more project-based. It was the first, first gig that I had where I wasn't, you know, the primary ticket, ticket, uh, ticket router and ticket handler. So it did give me a lot of time to um, refine my skills. And you mentioned getting into the PowerShell community. So you, at that time, I think you were probably already in the Spiceworks community, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, my career started in Spiceworks. Uh, so like go way back, my first job out of college was at a, a small help desk for an engineering firm. And my very first project there was to find a new help desk ticket system. And I chose Spiceworks and immediately got involved in the community because it was just me and my boss, who was there, uh, he was also a firefighter, so he wasn't there all the time. He was there maybe, you know, three to four times a week max. Um, and sometimes he would just have half days. And so I was really kind of left to my own right out of college, you know, never really managed Active Directory and all that stuff. And so I leveraged heavily the Spiceworks community. Um, and I, between the Spiceworks community and the PowerShell community is like where I it was my incubator, I would say, for my career. What makes someone want to add another community to their participation ledger if you will i think it was for me it was just having more more things to chase right like more people to to look for look up to and to grow and uh try to try to attain what they've what they've done or just to learn from them um so that's the kind of been the, ga the gauge that i've used for the communities is you know selfishly you know where can i plug in where there's the most value but it's also uh, one of the my favorite books is give and take by adam grant and he kind of highlights that the at the very bottom and to the very top of the reciprocity models is a giver. And it's just, it's the way in which the giver is, you know, you have the doormats at the very bottom that, that's, you know, are selfless in every aspect and to, the, to their fault. 
And then you have the giver at the top, which is kind of like, I don't know if this is the proper term in the book, but I call it a selfish giver, where they give in areas that are very rewarding, that are very interesting to them. And so it fuels them. Um, and so I've looked to communities where I can be that top type giver, where I can both, you know, receive a massive amount of knowledge and stand on the shoulder of giants, but also give back in a way um, that fuels me uh, as well. Because um, that I mean, there's, you can only be a lurker for so long, I feel like I felt guilty after about six, eight months in the Spice community is like, okay, I need to write something. And then you kind of get hooked though. Cause when you write something of value and you know, it does, I don't know if viral is the right word, but people comment and find it very useful. There is a little bit of a, I don't know, um, good karma that comes from that. That's very rewarding. And so you want to continue to do that. Yeah. It gives you that, it gives you that rush. It makes you feel great that you did something to help someone else. And it's almost a validation of, okay, I know some stuff. Yeah. Well, this is funny. So I think one of the, it was one of the first three articles I wrote, how to's, I believe they're still called at Spiceworks is like how, how to uh, image a windows seven with fog project, which is an open source kind of like semantic ghost. I checked that. It's probably three years ago now, but it was seven years after I wrote it and people were still commenting (laughs) on it, which is just, like nothing, like very few things in tech have that kind of a shelf life. Uh, and so that just to see that was just super, super rewarding. Yeah. If it's good t- content, it'll allow you to make it helpful across many, many different iterations of versions. That's, that's awesome. Now, when you got into the PowerShell community, was there a hesitancy to dig in there because you hadn't been a part of it before? Or was there less hesitancy because you had already started participating in, a, in Spiceworks? There was definitely less. Like I understood it was a little bit different because there there isn't or at the time there wasn't a really big form site like Spiceworks where there's just Q&A. It was more it kind of I kind of fell into it, to be honest. Uh, it started with my manager um, talking about what was, what was before Ignite? TechEd? TechEd sounds right. Yeah. So I just started. I watched the videos um, or the lineup. I wanted to go. I didn't go. But I just started looking at all these people talking about PowerShell and they had their Twitter handles. And so I was like, oh, maybe I should go on Twitter. And that's where I got addicted to Twitter to a degree and started. I just basically followed every MVP that had PowerShell in their bio um, for a number of years. And so just getting on there and, and uh, consuming that content, finding their blogs, uh, following them and then commenting and interacting. I just became part of the community through that space. Um, but it did make me feel more comfortable to reach out and engage online, having had the experience I did at Spiceworks. Now, how does that translate to working with your team of peers day to day? You're involved in multiple communities. You're contributing actively. Does that change the way you approach your peers at the office? It did because I I felt like I always had something to share. It gave me confidence, uh, especially being able to go share something and see it get 20 upvotes or something like that. You have some validation that your ideas are worthwhile. And so it it definitely gave me a boost of confidence. I, you know, from my career, I was typically the youngest one on the team and the most junior, almost always. I think today that's still pretty true. Um, and I don't know, it's a space that I really like, but it, having had that social validation from an online community of, of the world made me comfortable being that idealistic person uh, where I could go and share those ideas for sure. Yeah, that's definitely where that vote of confidence came from. And once you get that vote of confidence, a lot of times it can push you to take it one step further, learn the next thing, get the next job, whatever that is for the person in question. What what was that thing for you? What was the next thing because you because these communities propelled you one step forward and gave you that confidence? 
That's a really good question. Like I said, that's core. It gave me permission to keep redefining what I wanted for my career, you know, and, and to grow into that. You know, when I first started right out of college, like I tried to convince myself that I didn't want to be a programmer in any sense because I couldn't stare. I couldn't stand to stare at a screen that just had text. Like I wanted, I wanted GUIs and I originally wanted to be a game designer, but then I saw the six figure price tag and I'm glad my 18 year old self had the sense to not get six figures in debt right out of school. Instead of go to a charter school that I, you know, community college that was uh, free, which I'm very grateful for. Sounds like a solid choice to me. Yeah, it was a super solid choice. Uh, and I'm grateful that I made that even at 18. Yeah, the, the permission to keep redefining it because I, I didn't want to be a software engineer. And then I kind of, you know, I got into the workforce and I really enjoyed it. I was rewarded really well for hard work. And, and that kind of changed from school. In school, you're only kind of rewarded by grades. Like there's no other real reciprocity reward. And so going to the workforce was really good for me. And then finding that I liked coding and then getting the validation that, you know, as I started to learn, I started to teach and that gave me even more confidence, even even in interviews, right? Like I can be like, here's this blog post I wrote about it. Um, I've had many, blo- many interviews. There's one particular company that interviewed me where every person that sat across from me in the interview table had read some kind of my content, either a blog post or a Pluralsight course. Uh, and that was just, crazy but that's what happens over 10 years when you you're constantly generating public artifacts is they start to be your resume and so i think that that's yeah those public artifacts gave me that confidence to keep redefining what it is that i wanted to do in my career plus it gave me enough feedback to determine you know what what's both valuable and interesting to me yeah hopefully those listeners out there are building that body of work in some form whether it's participation in a community Putting it on the resume, maybe a blog, video content that they're producing. I think maybe a lot of people are afraid to put themselves out there in that way and get started. But I think coming up through the communities and asking questions and answering questions is a great way to validate that you have something to to share, something to show for the work that you've done, the the how-tos, the the project capabilities that you can put in, in communities like Spiceworks is nice. I love the fact that the people who interviewed you had read your blogs already. That's just, that had to have been a great feeling. It was, it was was crazy. Um, This is like a a tip that I would give to anybody that's on the fence about the public artifacts is you'll never go, go wrong by just adding value. Like if I, if I look back, you know, now that I'm more in a full-time writing capacity, I didn't realize until I took this job that writing had always been part of my story since that very first how-to on Spiceworks. But I didn't do it intentionally to try and find you know, my calling or passion with writing, every time I went to write an article or a how-to or even a comment, it was to add value. And so if you just have that as your North Star, that will just kind of guide you naturally towards those public artifacts. Um, Because you you won't be able to plot from A to Z, but you can go A to B. Um, But if you have just adding value as your North Star, it's going to just, it's going to make that easy. It's going to make it an easy choice to determine whether or not you should write it. Um, because once you get in that game of online content and generating content, it's there's a slippery slope with self-promotion and marketing and stuff like that. But if you always have your center as adding value, you'll never stray too far. I like that. Set the intention before you post it. That's great advice. Now, you you also, in addition to creating the content, you also did some community moderation. What led you to to do that in addition to just contributing in the forums? So a common theme throughout my career 
is people have pushed me <laughs> to do things. Uh, so that happened. I think I was I just came up to a local spice uh, spice corpse group jogging my memory here. It's been been a number of years and they were stepping down like they just were busy and they knew that I was a big, you know, active member of spice Works as a whole. And so they offered it to me to take over leadership of that. And so I did that. And I was also, you know, a moderator that came up. But usually, like after you've done enough activity, kind of these opportunities present themselves. And then it's just your choice whether or not you you go with them. So I, I typically default to yes on those types of, of um, opportunities, especially this is great advice. I think it comes from James Clear. But like in the beginning of your career to become successful, you say yes to everything. Towards the middle and end of your career to, to remain successful, you say no to almost everything. And so definitely in the beginning, um, saying yes to those opportunities that they came because one, I was really honored and didn't expect it was what got me in there. And then I just really enjoyed that leading capacity. That's another theme that's been been throughout my my career is some form of leadership that isn't management. Like I've always, always shied away from management, like uh, managing people, but I've always gravitated towards trying to lead by um, sharing ideas or lead by bringing people together, you know, whether that just be in the tools that we use or in solving problems in a a forum, it's been those two things. So I think having that tendency and then just being open to the opportunities is how I fell into them. Yeah, that's good. And I agree with you. Not everybody wants to lead by being a manager. There have to be paths that allow you to do those sorts of things that aren't management the individual contributor's path with a leadership type role. You know, I've been wanting to to read Will Larson's book, Staff Engineer. I, I got to order it first, but it's on the list. The, the reading list just gets longer as I interview people like yourself and you toss out book recommendations. So I've already I've already captured two more that I need to that I need to read. A few minutes ago, you mentioned Pluralsight. Now, were you taking courses for Pluralsight or was this building courses? I, so I built courses, So, but you know, you start as a consumer. And so the story behind that was I was at a, an in-person PowerShell user group here locally and a gentleman by the name of Sean Boolean, it almost, it's almost like Boolean, but it's Boolean. He was the instructor and I just, I really liked his approach to teaching. And I was starting to, to lead like internal trainings and stuff like that around PowerShell because my managers had asked me to share what I know. And I, I really enjoyed it. And at the time I was looking, you know, like, hey, maybe I can make some extra side cash. I was really ambitious. Uh, younger gentleman, and I wanted to, you know, do a great job providing for my family and so forth and thought maybe I could teach on the side. And so I approached him and I said, hey, you know, like, you know, what's the path to becoming like a certified Microsoft trainer? I'd like to maybe think of this. And he goes, no, you don't even want it. You don't even want to do that. He's like, if you want to make some money, if you want to make some good money and not have all the barriers to jump through, he's like, you should become a Pluralsight author. And at first I kind of rejected that. I was like, oh no, I can't record, you know, video content. That's, you know, these people are amazing. I can't, can't do any of that. And so I you know, continued for a couple months down the PowerShell journey. And then Adam Bertram came onto the scene with several po- uh, PowerShell SCCM, right at, you know, right, uh, perfectly matched exactly what I was looking for um, about around PowerShell and SCCM. And so I, I watched his courses and then just, you know, something sparked me. I was like, you know what, maybe I could do this. So I reached out to Adam and I said, you know, like, what, what's the process? What do you do to, to become an author? And he's like, well, you just basically you audition, <laughs> you know, like you record five minutes of yourself uh, presenting and you send it in. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And at the time, Don Jones was the curriculum director that I had to send my audition to. And so like, he was a huge name in the PowerShell space for those that don't know him. Uh, and so I was immediately, you know, starstruck. I was like, okay, now I have to audition for, for Don, you know, like the PowerShell yeah, guru, guru here. And um, 
but I, I did and I decided to do it on something. I think it was DSC at the time. That was my first course. Uh, and so just pushing through that imposter syndrome and my own self-doubt, I eventually did. Um, and then I, over the next couple of years, I did, you know, maybe I think I finished with four, but I haven't, I haven't recorded a course in a number of years, probably probably three or four years now, but that's the the background story there. Now, do they give you kind of a rough outline of what they'd like to see in a course? Or do you actually have to say, I want to do a course on X and I think it should cover these 10 things, almost as if you're giving them a syllabus? In the beginning, it was very much you define your path, right? Like you get to choose your topic. There was a lot more, a lot more things less like not covered. Now there's, you know, a million courses in Pluralsight because they've just exploded in popularity and, and awesomeness. Um, so in the beginning, you know, five years ago or so when I started, there was a lot more freedom. You could kind of pick your topics. They, they had a catalog that you could choose from if you didn't know. And so, you know, some two of my courses I picked and then the other two I picked from the catalog. Now it's a little bit different story because they, they know what their customers need. They have a lot better, a, a much better pulse on that. I view it as, you know, like a train a slowly starting that you could jump on. And now the train is just, it's whizzing by and you get to pick, you know, take whatever is handed to you from a, a course catalog. But I mean, they have that really refined. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. They just have their things really figured out. They know what they need in their catalog. And if you can fit into that, great. And it'll be a great opportunity. You know, one, you get Pluralsight author on your bio. And then two, it's really, you know, it's good monetary incentive. But I will say it is a part-time job for the duration of record. And I mean, legitimately a part-time job. Like you will spend as many hours doing that as you will if you were to like deliver pizzas or do some, you know, DoorDash on the side. Like it, it takes, takes a long time. I think it took me was, I think my first course, every minute of, every minute that was recorded took an hour from edit publish. So two hour course. Wow. Yeah. Cause you would, you'd edit your own videos. It sounds like you're coming up with any written content, PowerPoint slides, probably building out the demo environment too, if I had to guess, and then figuring out what your flow needs to be there. Right. Yeah. The whole thing. So the, mine were really fun because there weren't all these awesome infrastructure as code languages. So I had to build all the, you know, servers and stuff. Uh, for DSC and for regular expression myself, but huge learning experience. But yeah, from outline to what you're going to say to getting used to your own voice, which I don't think anyone ever does, um, all that's all that's on you. They do have a great editing team. So like going through to make sure your sound levels are really good. They have technical reviews too. So they make sure that they can catch those things. And then obviously, you know, they do a great job of marketing it too. So there's, there's that relief of burden. You know, if you were to record a YouTube video or whatever, you know, it's all up on you to do um, the marketing and all that aspect. But yeah, it's a lot of work. I bet. So in that same light, when you're saying yes to everything, how do you decide when it's time to let something fall by the wayside? Because there's no way to sustain it all. I, I'm having the same trouble personally. That's been the the, the big lesson for me in 2021. Um, and it's for me, it's knowing what you want most. Right. And so the way that I started to cope with that is deciding not to decide. And so, you know, with all these opportunities that I've had, I had to kind of take a look at them and, and say, you know, like, is continuing to do what I've always done going to get me to the next level of success that I want? As I've redefined, you know, I've kind of reached the top of the vision that I had for myself when I was 20. And now I have to redefine that for maybe when I'm 40. And it looks completely different than, you know, what I wanted when I was 20. And I, was, I had to be really honest with myself and say, all these fantastic opportunities that I would have, you know, loved to have when I was younger, and that would have been amazing. They have diminishing returns now. And I have uh, basically what I've done for at least the next six to eight months as I've tried to figure out this uh, writing project that I'm working on is I'm going to say no to all freelance work. And so in that one statement, I'm deciding not to decide on all these other things. It was very, 
tormenting at the beginning of the year. I had a lot of opportunities. There was some great Pluralsight content that um, that I could have, you know, jumped on and and authored, which would have been great and it would have lined up perfectly with my expertise and interest, really. But I had to decide what I wanted more. And so I'm hoping that that's not a terrible <laughs> long term uh, decision, um, but I think it'll work out. But that's the single thing that I've learned that I've really been working on is to figure out one, have clarity and and faith in what it is that I want more, like really think about that. And it's it'll take you some time. Like I've been mulling this over for the better part of a year. Like, what does this look like? Switching more into a, a writing profession versus an engineering profession. Um, and what sacrifices am I going to have to make to make room enough for those other projects? Yeah. That's hard. It actually reminded me, have you ever read High Performance Habits? I don't think I've read that one. Some of the things you said actually sounded similar to the advice in that book. The author says, find your primary field of interest, and it sounds like you have, and then focus on creating prolific quality output a very large percentage of the time. I can't remember if he said 60 or 80% of your time to be focused on creating that output by saying no to everything else. I seem to remember him giving similar advice, you know, say no to stuff that's outside this domain so that you can focus on that, that output that you want. Before you got into writing, you actually made a transition from what we would call systems administration to more DevOps administration or DevOps engineering. What's that like and, and what makes someone want to pursue that track? I saw it uh, as a natural progression. So when I was, you know, I did a number, I, you know, really started on the the help desk that we talked about prior. And then I became the systems engineer and worked on SCCM. And then I joined as a senior systems engineer um, for a large pro- uh, processing, payments processing company where I mainly did Active Directory. Um, but I, I got to, that was the first team that I was on that everybody was a scripter or at least knew, knew an automation language to a degree. We even had a C-sharp developer there. And so it was a really good experience for me because I got to, I got to build my own solutions and be what most would call a developer, right? So like for the domain migrations, I actually use PowerShell to migrate the, the, the users, but I would use the SQL backend to track everything. And I would use that SQL backend to generate reports and to send it to senior leadership. And so I, you know, I had a Microsoft consultant come in and I, you know, I just out of my pure excitement and joy, I showed him what I did, what I did. And he's like, if you would have had us come in here and do this, it would have probably cost your company a quarter million dollars or maybe even half a million dollars, you know, because I spent eight months working on this tracking software and it tracked multiple domains. And I had figured out all the little PowerShell commands to actually move the users and computers in a safe way and to handle all the mailboxes and stuff like that. And he's like, just from an hour standpoint, like how much you put in here. And I, I had a lot of collaboration. It wasn't just me. I had a, you know, a team of four or five other engineers help me with the design. And um, I had that develop the C-sharp developer because I didn't have any SQL experience prior. Uh, and so I leaned heavily on the Manning books um, that are out there for that. The toolmaking book was a great resource for me um, with Jeff Hicks and Don that wrote that. But at that point, I realized that I was I was getting past what I felt was um, with at least with the coding, right? Like not from the administrator. I didn't want to. I I was a six years admin in a prior life, and I I didn't want to go down that route any that route any further. I didn't want to go in and specialize in VMware. I was really interested in like what does it look like to take this coding to the next level, but I didn't want to yet. Like I didn't want to switch into a junior software engineer. I didn't really care to develop web applications or anything like that, or even APIs. I wanted to deal with infrastructure. And so I saw DevOps as that path where I could bridge, I could ride that fine line between a developer and an engineer and, and as an administrator and leverage all my past experience. And so as I progressed through there, I, you know, I picked up 
uh, source control. I picked up using CI CD pipelines. And then I really, um, I think the catalyst there was infrastructure as code or from code where I got into using DSC, which is a natural progression, desired state configuration for people that don't know, which is a natural progression from PowerShell because it is PowerShell. And that I basically created my own configuration management tool with uh, using Octopus Deploy as a delivery vehicle. And then I stumbled into Ansible and then Ansible into that. And it kind of, you know, once you get into the DevOps world, you start to run into barriers beyond administration. And so I started to, you know, read the, the quote unquote DevOps literature about culture and process and, you know, Kanban and all those good things. But yeah, I guess what got me moving in between was I, I saw it as an opportunity to be in between the two worlds um, and get to learn an enormous amount of of knowledge, but I now I see it as like a natural progression. Um, I really don't see there being a split between a, an IT admin and a DevOps engineer. It's just the way that you it's the way that you carry out your work that's different. You know, instead of having the silos of the devs and the ops, they're more or less together and they're planning their work together. I've even heard it referred to as like modern ops and and different things like that. It really is reliant on the organizational design, and it's partially a mindset too. So even if you work in a traditional IT shop doesn't mean that you can't start bringing in some DevOps practices or learn uh, learn those techniques. And is there usually a DevOps organization that you fit into within the company? Or could you maybe be classified in, quote, technology operations or perhaps even technology engineering in terms of the organization? I've seen it in all flavors. It's, I mean, that's the tricky thing with DevOps because it, the very first time that I was had the title DevOps engineer, I was on a DevOps team, but really what we were was release engineers. And it wasn't until that we started taking on the infrastructure from as code responsibilities that we started, we basically acquired all the sysadmins for the organization and joined our DevOps organization. There's a really great book called Team Topologies that breaks down these different these different team structures is from an organization standpoint. But there's usually the embedded model where the SREs are working alongside SREs or DevOps engineers are right alongside embedded in the software teams. There's the traditional model where they're a separate entity and then they work through tickets or other forms. That's kind of like the, you know, dev versus admin um, where they're more focused on on alignment and velocity and writing automation versus just handling tickets. And then there's the other model, which is kind of like the SRE model. So SRE, in my opinion, is an implementation of a dev of DevOps, of the DevOps and DevOps engineers. And basically there you have this organization of SREs and they're like some are aligned to teams that require more handholding, but they've had enough time to engineer enough solutions where many of the dev teams are unlocked and they're autonomous and self-sustaining. And the SREs are there to help, you know, basically coordinate firefighting in a lot of ways. Like they're they're, their first responder, but they have immediate access to the devs to escalate. So yeah, there's a variety of organizations and that's why it's, it's super difficult um, when people people will ask me like, what do you think about this position as a DevOps engineer? I was like, I have no idea the org structure. Go ahead and if it, the tech stack lines up and you drive well with the team, like maybe give it a try. But you really won't know until you join, like what that full picture looks like. Sounds like some good interview questions to ask beyond just the roles and responsibilities, but more the who do I report to and how's it structured and which VP is this under. All that good stuff. What's the page volume? That was that was my number one question. What's the page volume? Nice. If you're a systems administrator today, let's say you're that IT generalist. And as you mentioned, it can kind of be a logical transition over to DevOps engineering. What kinds of things should I be looking at making sure I'm learning next to transition into, into a role like that, you think? 
my gateway was infrastructure as code and cloud. So those two combined and, and they would go hand in hand because the cloud is all based on these API wrappers or API calls, honestly. And so using anything, it, I mean, you, you start with your language that you're so for your foundation is you need some kind of a scripting language or some kind of a, a an automation language or programming language under your belt. So you, you have a way to communicate with developers like you can speak their language, so to speak, but you're also going to use the same tools. You use the same tools to manage your infrastructure automation as they do their code. And once you mature in your um, automation languages, you'll actually use the same tech stack underneath. You'll use Git, you'll use CI, CD pipelines, and you'll have code reviews and all that good stuff. But where I would start is learning a, a scripting language and then focusing, if you have a systems and administration background, probably pretty heavily in infrastructure, you know, leverage that to bridge the gap by learning how to automate that completely, you know, like from building the server to configuring it entirely. Like a lot of this stuff is really, really doable, especially with, you know, you can automatically trigger backups and stuff like that. So getting that immutable infrastructure or at least mutable infrastructure with config management would be my first step into that world. Is it possible to pick the wrong scripting language and it takes me in a poor direction? I don't, it really depends on your your mental models and your past history. So if you're a Linux administrator, I wouldn't just try to pick up PowerShell because there's just a lot of mental models around Windows that are still there, even though PowerShell does run on Ubuntu and Linux and it runs in the cloud and, you know, is is cross-platform. That was a big stumbling block that I had when I tried, when I was learning AWS. I you know, For whatever reason, like the organization I was a part of at the time, they were going AWS. I kind of wanted to be, you know, on the new tool because they, they weren't really happy with Azure. And so I I really struggled to pick up AWS until I shifted and, and learned about Azure first because so much of my window, it was Microsoft. So obviously a lot of those mental models just overlaid much better. But once I learned Azure, I picked up AWS, no problem. So I would definitely leverage your past experiences. So if you have a Linux background, picking up something like Python is going to be more natural. If you have a Windows background, PowerShell is a natural fit. But once you get that foundation, then there's configuration management or provisioner tools like Terraform and Ansible that I would focus on. Basically, anything they shove into Cloud Shell would be a good a good tool to target. There's definitely ones that you can go wrong in, you know, like some of the other configuration management tools are falling in popularity just because of the infrastructure they require. And so like Terraform and Ansible are, have been the front runners just because they have a very simple uh, architecture. Yeah, definitely good advice. Appreciate that. So if you're out there and you're looking, there are ways, but it sounds like you need to go deep in one and not get distracted with learning them all at once. Yep. One of my favorite little quotes is learn enough to practice, practice till you understand. And I came up with that because I kept becoming paralyzed by trying to choose the next thing that I needed to learn because I thought I needed to master it. Whatever I picked up, I needed to master. But really, you want to aim for competence first, and then you can decide whether or not you want to pursue mastery. But yes, to your point, though, you can't just go and take a Pluralsight course or, you know, read one book on all of these. You want to spend a significant amount of time with one of them because there will be so much bleed over in knowledge as you pick up the other ones. And so having, um, you know, the buzzword T-shaped knowledge is very true, where you do want to have that deep expertise in one thing, because it'll give you understanding across many. But then don't be afraid after you've got that deep expertise to learn a lot of little things, at least at a competency level. Um, you don't always have to dive straight into to mastery. Right. That competency, along with the mastery you already have, creates this, we'll just call it expertise snowball, if you will. That just widens your impact, I think. It's like an iterative mentality, if you will. So I have to ask the question. I know you worked at Stack Overflow, and you mentioned that it was your dream job. And you worked for a guy named Tom Limoncelli. Hopefully I said that right. You did. 
who also wrote The Practice of System and Network Administration, as well as Time Management for Systems Administrators. So when you work for a guy who wrote a book on time management for systems administrators, what is that like? Honestly, it was awesome. those that participate in a community of some sort today, whether technical or non-technical, my thinking is that most of us probably lurk a little bit before we really start to get involved, maybe ask some questions, try and learn from others before we actually contribute something. Josh had the same experience. He mentioned that participating in communities provided validation that his ideas are worthwhile. I think that applies to many of us. We want to know, is the thing that we're thinking about or wanting to share with others a good idea, something that will be well-received, something that will actually help people? And this type of participation in communities and then also the helpfulness he was able to take to his own teammates at work was a form of leadership that Josh qualified as something that was not management, but it was still leadership. And I think a lot of us out there are looking for that non-management path where we can still lead in some way. It does exist, ladies and gentlemen. My favorite quote from the episode was that you'll never go wrong by just adding value. I really like that. It's a great takeaway that Josh provides us. Being someone who was very high output and still is, He mentioned in the episode that after saying yes to everything, he eventually got to the point of unsustainability. There's no way he can keep saying yes to everything and still accomplish it all. There's only so much time in a day, so you have to really become more focused with your time and figure out when you're supposed to say no or what you're supposed to say no to. For Josh, he's decided that he's going to say no to any type of freelance work in the next six to eight months because he has some specific writing goals that he wants to accomplish. He took the time to figure out what those goals were and he's trying to focus his efforts on making sure that he can achieve those goals rather than having too many things on his plate at once and not achieving anything. Josh also told us that he wanted to get to the next level in his career without having to become a junior software developer. And so this transition into DevOps engineering, in his mind, was kind of an adjacency. He was able to take a lot of the lessons that he had learned from systems administration and apply them in that area. But he also had to do some learning on his own to develop skills in learning to code and public cloud. And those were the two things he pointed out really helped him once he got to that DevOps engineering role. His advice was aim for competence You don't have to be a master of all the things. You're probably going to need to be the master of some of the things, but being competent in other things will help you as well. And you also probably picked up on the fact that Josh recognized writing was part of his story. We're going to dig more into that next week when we get to part two. Oh yes, there is a part two. And the sequel? Just as good as the first, of course. Just a reminder that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. 
I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore flying solo for now. For my buddy John White at B Journeyman, signing off. Thank you.